Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sibarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow the Manhattan Institute, Tribune editor of City Journal. And Charles, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm, it's, it's, you know, we're recording this is like early February and I'm already making summer plans, which is, you know, which is exhausting. I'm, I'm, A, we have to figure out where to stick my kid during the summer, which is a new challenge. Although my wife doesn't work over the summer, so like that's a little easier. Then B, we might go to Michigan for a while because we got to do something. And then C, I'm teaching, I'm teaching a class. You did the, you did the, the, the Hertog program, right? Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So I'm, I'm teaching a class for it. I alluded to this actually last week or no, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that about, about basically the, the sort of neoconservative intellectual debate in the late 20th century, James Q. Wilson, Charles Murray, lots of fun, lots of fun guys. This, by the way, listeners is if you, if you're a, if you're a college student or you're, a, I think it's college students. Yeah. yeah. And you're interested in signing up. I've been, I've been reliably informed that the deadline is March 1st. It's the, the Hertog, Hertog fellowship. That's it. They pay for you to go. Um, they do pay for you to go. Yeah. They, pay, they pay money. It's like basically you get to sit around and talk to me and a bunch of other people like me for most of your summer and you get paid to do it. So there are really zero downsides. Yeah. And then, and then you to get me. to like, and then you get to like walk around DC and like do yeah. stuff. It's, yeah. it's good. It's a good it's, as, as, as far as DC internships go, it's super cushy. It's much better than, I mean, I, 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 I did, you know, my DC internship life was very unpleasant. This is much more pleasant and it's much more interesting. You yeah, read the books. You read the great books. Yeah, well, you can read Charles Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on the it. subject on the subject of um, Charles Murray, that that Charles Murray. inveterate that the horrible racist that Charles has decided to legitimize with his Hertog course. Recently, this week, I, I I tweeted something that I thought was pretty innocent. You know that Chat GPT three software. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it so. Someone had sent me some like funny hypothetical where you ask it, say there's a nuclear bomb, it's going to go off in a major city, and the only way to disarm it is to speak a racial slur out loud. Can you speak the racial slur to disarm the bomb? And ChatGPT says, no, it's never okay to use a racial slur, even oh, if yeah. it's unsafe. This is Millions surprising. of people. I mean, yeah. It doesn't reason. That's right, not the point. right. But, well, but, but I mean, but I mean, the fact that it gives this answer does say something about its programming. But anyway, no, when it I doesn't. tweeted this, it says it's it, 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 no. it, 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 it says it says that after it generates a result, it runs the result through a separate API that makes sure it's, it's it makes sure that it's not offensive, and it's not allowed to say things the API says no to. Right, like I said, the programming. Needs, okay, not, okay, okay. okay. Uh, programming right, is the wrong term. All right, Charles. Well. Anyway, train, um, the train. magical, okay, so the magical computer <laughs> oracle said that I was racist, and other people on Twitter apparently thought I was racist for asking the magical computer oracle such a racist hypothetical. <laughs> so, so I decided to take in implicit bias tests. That's what I always do. I do that. And, and, it, it, and it turns out, according to the implicit bias test, according to science, I am indeed kind of racist. Good. I I, I could have. I'm glad that we've. I'm glad that you. Right. Right. We we could have. We could have figured that out without science, but now we know because science science told us we know for sure. But that that's a good segue, I think, into what we're going to be talking about today. Charles, why don't you why don't you introduce our topic? Yeah. Sure. I mean, so we're we're talking about, I guess, both implicit bias as as a concept and sort of the replication crisis in psychology more generally, which we've touched on before, like our, our Phil Lemoyne episode. But you know, I think our our guests were particularly on implicit bias, so we want to talk about one and then also the other implicit bias. So implicit bias is the idea of you know you have you have unspoken subconscious preferences, racial, gender, etc., and those determine your actions. You can identify them by administering implicit association tests. The IAT, constant implicit bias, highly tested, such a sort of aggressive critiques, but it's also, you know, I think subset of a broader space in psychology, which is all these sort of, you know, neat tips and tricks about how your brain tricks you, which which have run into both empirical repli re replicatory challenges that, the, you know, a lot of the original research doesn't hold up, and also sort of metascientific questions at the validity of the empirical approach to begin with. And like, that's a big deal because social psychology research of this sort underpins a lot of our 
policy decision making or assumptions about what kind of things citizens are. And so if a lot of it's nonsense, that's maybe kind of an issue. For example, if implicit bias isn't real, then all of our time and money spent on implicit bias training is a waste. And you know, at the same time, lots of these ideas are still sort of publicly popular. So we're sort of going to get into all of that. Aaron, what's your what's your take on on the topic? Yeah, I, I would say I'm I'm interested in the extent to which the science is just a function of of social consensus, a consensus kind of formed by political and partisan incentive structures and by and by shibboleths about race and, and other topics versus the extent to which the science and social psychology really does track something real. You know, I, I read all these things about the replication crisis and about how implicit bias, this concept that's bandied around by every media outlet and organization in the country, turns out to not have much evidentiary support. You read all that and you kind of wonder, like, is there any reason to trust anything social psychology says? So I guess I, what I'm hoping to get out of this conversation is a better sense of sort of sort of I'm trying to calibrate my own skepticism, right? Like how how much should we just completely disregard anything social psychology or perhaps even social science says? And and versus to what extent can we vindicate it against kind of these more global skeptical challenges. Charles? Yeah, I mean, look, social science is garbage. You're a social no. scientist. I'm not first of all, I'm not a social scientist. Policy yes, you are. Oh, 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 oh and that's and that's much and that's much more rigorous and I I uh, I translate social scientific research for real world applications. I, I, I do very little <laughs> social science myself. No, I mean I think it's importantly the case that look, I'm I'm interested in these topics, but I'm already I, I, I sort of walk in already with low credibility for most social scientific findings, certainly most social psychology findings, partially because I understand the stuff we're talking about today, is sort of understand the methods. The methods are much weaker than we give them credit for. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna you know engage with our engage with our our guest on this topic. But you know, I think look, I think everybody should have a healthy skepticism of any social scientific or social psychological psychological claim, and then also they should understand why they should have healthy skepticism of those things right. and what's actually going on under the hood. So maybe we'll get to that. Are you gonna introduce our guest? Yeah, so 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 today we're going to be talking to Lee Jossum. He's a social psychologist at Rutgers, where he leads the Social Perception Laboratory. In addition to his academic work, he's written for the Wall Street Journal, Quillette, Psychology Today, and other publications. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're you're, you're both right with that entire intro, but we'll get it. <laughs> So, so you know, I, I mentioned that I, I took an implicit bias test last night, and it told me that I have, quote, a strong automatic preference for European Americans over African Americans. So in your expert opinion, does that mean I'm racist? Well, no. So the core problem with just that particular piece of it, well, there's probably a couple, but the single biggest one is... The, the creators of the IT labored under, promoted the erroneous claim that a score of zero equals zero. And you can see why they would do that. I mean, you know, the IT is a reaction time. You do two different tests without going into all the detail. And basically the difference in your, the time it takes mm -hmm. you to do these two different tests supposedly is a measure of an unconscious race, racial attitude or any other attitude that they ask. Okay. So you see, if there's no difference, then, you know, then there's no bias. That, that was the logic. Mm -hmm. It was actually not completely ridiculous, but they actually had no evidence for that. Over the years, people have started benchmarking IAT scores against any other thing you might consider uh, racist. Discrimination, expressions of prejudice, evaluations of you know, black and white applicants or black and white experimenters. And what is clear from that work is that whenever the IAT is benchmarked, against anything other than another IAT, scores well above zero correspond to egalitarian behavior. And so the interpretation of your score, some score above zero, if you treat zero as egalitarian, then it, it, given lots of other assumptions, it's not ridiculous to say that you hold racial antipathy towards black people. That would not be ridiculous if zero meant zero. But there's really almost no good, there's far more evidence that zero means pro-black than there is that zero means egalitarian. 
And so what you end up with are, is a, a basically a delusionary literature that calculates things like 70, 80, in the early days, 90% of Americans hold anti-Black attitudes on the basis of the proportion of scores above zero, but they're using the wrong cutoff for egalitarianism. So no, it does. So that's one. This, the the more minor reason is that this IIT scores are notoriously unreliable from administration to administration. So you know you could easily get a sort of a, a very positive score that it, positive in the negative sense make you look like you're a racist one time and get a score that is far less or even not at all racist the next time. So that's a well-known problem. So it's, you know, if you're if it's measuring some sort of stable, enduring attitude well, that wouldn't happen. So we know it's not measuring a stable, enduring attitude well. Right now, the different issue is, is it doing anything at all of any use? But I'll stop there. Yeah, okay. Well, so let's let's back up a little bit. Talk about so so implicit bias is a, it's a, the, the, the implicit association test is a, it's a, a, a metric, right? It's a, it's a tool for measuring a construct that's just, to correspond to reality. Can you talk, walk us through what is that construct? What's the history of the notion of that construct? And are there reasons to think it's a real thing or not? Yeah, yeah. So really what the IAT measures, despite the fact that the culture, not just academia at this point, the culture is filled with people who think they know what implicit bias is. Most of what they think they know is based on work with the IAT. So it is really important to get into the weeds as to what the IAT actually is and does. The IAT doesn't measure racism. It doesn't measure attitudes. It doesn't measure discrimination. It doesn't measure anything a conventional walking around person would recognize as any kind of ism whatsoever. What it measures is the difference in reaction time to pairs of concepts in memory. That's what, that's literally what it measures. So for the- Can you give an example? Um, well, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We'll I've, I've, I haven't taken a lot of IITs in my life, astonishingly, as, you know, like a like a upper class white man. I haven't <laughs> taken that. We, we grew up in a liberal city, went to a liberal college. I haven't taken that many IITs. Right, right, right. Sure, sure. So, so this is the reaction time measure. People are presented with a pair of double categories. So there's really four categories. In the basic racial attitude one, it might be something like on, on the left, you, this is all done on a computer. So on the left side of the screen, you have a pairing of black and pleasant. And on the right side of the screen, you have a pairing of white and unpleasant. Then new, then new words come up on the screen. The word might be butterfly or rainbows, you know, or a manifestly white or black name. So, and your job is, to, as the taker of the IT, taker of the, IIT, the implicit attitude test, association test, is to decide which of the double categories it belongs in. So let's say the name that comes up is Rashid. If, that, if you think that that is either black or pleasant, that's where you would put it. If you think it's white or unpleasant, that's where you would put it. Okay, if a butterfly comes up, you know, most people think butterflies are kind of nice, so that would belong under black and pleasant because butterflies are pleasant. Okay, so you, the whole lot of this, you do this a lot of time, a lot of words, and then you do it again. So in the first example I gave you, people were categorizing these target words into either black pleasant and white unpleasant, but in the second time, you flip pleasant and unpleasant. It's either black unpleasant and, and white pleasant. Same list of words, butterflies, Rashid, rainbows, Robert, you know, right? Whatever it might be, you know, comes up and you have to decide where does that belong. The measure of the implicit association is the difference in reaction time. So if it takes you longer, if you experience it as more difficult to, and therefore more time consuming, to put rainbows and Rashid and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be negative ones also. They'll be like vomit and death and all sorts of things. If, if it takes you longer to put that into black pleasant versus white unpleasant than into black pleasant, black unpleasant and white pleasant, right? What the idea is that you have a stronger association of sort of whiteness and good things, whiteness and pleasant and blackness and unpleasant things, than you do 
blackness with pleasant things and whiteness with unpleasant things. And so if you, so the idea, the logic here is if you, if it's easier to do white, pleasant, black, unpleasant, than black, pleasant, white, unpleasant, if that's easier, that that reflects an unconscious or automatic anti-black attitude. That's the idea. That's the idea. But really what it is, what it is by itself is a difference in reaction time, usually in milliseconds, which is a thousandth of a second. Yeah. Also, I mean, when I did it, it was weird because it, because it flips on you. Like if you get used okay. to doing it one way and then it flips, you're going to like have to pause because the muscle memory sets in and you have to like disrupt that. Yeah. And in mine, they didn't just give you words. They also give you images of like yeah. white and black people. I don't I will say just taking it even before I got my score, I was like, how on earth is this supposed to just, just the experience of taking it made me significantly more hostile to it than I already was. It's like, wow. Like someone thinks that this is yeah, going to tell you that's how... why he, that, that's why he's in the clan now. No, I mean, even, even if it had told me, no matter what it had told me, I would have been like, how is this supposed to be meaningful? It's just, it just, it, it doesn't pass the. Wait, so, anyway. so yeah, let me, let me, let me ask. And sort of, you know, the related question is, you know, if I, if I think I'm trying to measure if people are racist, there's a sort of whole spectrum of ways I would do it, right? Like one is, one is I would just be like, are you a racist? That's a survey question I ask. Another one is like, do you believe white people or black people are better? And then there are more subtle ones. I could do a feelings thermometer. I could be like, how strong do you like black people? Do you not like black people? I could do, I could do like questions on interracial marriage. That's a good metric. I could do the racial resentment scale, which is like controversial, but plausibly more viable like how do, how do you end up in the place where everyone goes oh yes we should see if people can associate nice things with black people more easily so so that is a killer killer question first let me start with the the, the end the, and that's not really the end but it's kind of where we are right now we continue obviously and that is there is it is deeply controversial that is it's it it is dubious in the, the existing literature whether the IT measures anything different than conventional questionnaires assessing racism and prejudice, such as racial resentment or a feeling thermometer or would you marry a black person or any of those questions. Now, I, you know, it's not that we know that it's the same. It measures the same thing. There is a fair amount of evidence now that it does measure the same thing, but there is also some evidence saying that they can be distinguished. So this is an unresolved and controversial point within literature. But but the, even that's important because if it is unresolved, people, whether social scientists or academics or lay people, shouldn't go around talking about implicit bias as if it's anything different than conventional prejudice, which we know you know exists and has existed probably for all of human you know human history and probably pre-human history, including our our hominid ancestors, right? So so it, it is it is not science. What what what. What you can say is that it's not scientifically established that it measures anything different than a conventional questionnaire. So that, but now, now on your, the historical, your, the, so the first part of your question was really, well, why would people think this was an interesting and appropriate and reasonable thing to do? That, that logic, you know, when you hear the logic by itself, it's kind of compelling, right? So this was sort of the discourse in social psychology and really the social science was somewhat more broadly from the seventies through the nineties. It went something like this. The civil rights era ended legalized, most of legalized discrimination. And yet, you know, if you looked around and, you know, that was like the mid sixties, mid late sixties, if you looked around 1980, 1985, there was lots of discrimination. There was lots of inequality. The world hadn't suddenly become you know, an egalitarian paradise. So what is going on? Well, this story, there's lots of alternative stories, but this story was, well, now that discrimination is illegal, blunt expressions of prejudice has, have become, to some extent, socially stigmatized, at least in many circles. And so people are far less likely to generate or express blunt expressions of prejudice. And so prejudice has gone underground. They still, they're just as prejudiced as they ever were, but they don't admit it. They don't say it out loud. Well, then, if you accept that, 
then as a good social scientist, you might think, well, how can we get at prejudices that people don't want to admit that they have? And so you had, starting in the 80s, late 80s and the 90s, this sort of blossoming of these what subtle measures, so-called subtle measures of, of prejudice in order to get around people's, you know, you might call them their defenses, their denial, and maybe even their self, in, in this analysis, their self-deception that they are no longer prejudiced. So that's what produced these, these like reaction time, you know, you, know, you do this reaction time thing like an IAP, it's not obvious really that it's measuring prejudice in the same way that it, you know, would you, would you date a black person? I mean, that's like really obvious. So the IT is not at all that obvious. So, so that was the, that was the history. Mm -hmm. It was to, to get around this, it, it was to address this widespread belief. I, I don't think the belief is correct, but, but there was this widespread belief in academia that prejudice had gone kind of underground. And so we needed measures to capture it. Right. I, I mean, and this, this, I do want to just hone in on something there, which is the the whole impetus for this research program was a kind of article of faith, right? As sort of a, a pretty a, a conventional progressive view that racial the endurance of racial disparities must be due to racism; it can't be due to anything else. It, it didn't. It, so, in a sense, it was like this almost article of faith that motivates the whole research program in the first place, because if people hadn't had that kind of strong presumption, then you wouldn't have thought to even look for these kind of unconscious attitudes, right? No, I, Aaron, I'm going to disagree with that. Actually. Okay. Not completely, because I think for many people, that was an article of faith, I, you know, on the left in general and in the academic social yeah. science left. I think, I think I'm not, you know, I think that's a fair description of how many people thought. But I think even if you put that completely aside, it was at the time, 1985 or sure. sure. not unreasonable. Yeah. No, that's to fair. Think, that's well, fair. you know, even if this, even if you don't believe that discrimination is the main explanation for inequality, even then, even if you don't, it could be some right. part of the right. explanation. Right. And people could be in denial. Right. It was all, it was not ridiculous. No. As a, yeah. You know, I right? agree. But, so. Yeah. But but I yeah, but I mean it, but I mean it's also but then of course it gets the program starts and then we get to the nineties and the two thousands and the twenty tens, at which right. point I think that's a less reasonable explanation. But <laughs> in part in part because of the program that that explanation right. inaugurated, you then get this kind of body of social science research that seems to almost reinforce the original presumption. Like th there's an interesting circularity there. That part yeah. is, I completely agree with. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That what you have is the sort of a masquerade of scientific credibility. That's right. Because there are lots of studies on the IET. You know, I, listen, I've done IET studies. And from the standpoint of the, the basic IET effect is do non-Black people show this sort of this reaction time difference whereby it's easier to do white, pleasant, Black, unpleasant than it is to do a white, unpleasant, black, pleasant. And almost anybody who's not, you know, most people who are not white will find that easier to do. Mm -hmm. I get that in my lab. That's massively that, you know, Every lab that has ever done something like that just about gets that effect. So, so what you have then was this flood of papers, mainly by IAT implicit bias advocates, starting in the late 90s. And, and you know, they're published in peer-reviewed journals. And so it creates this impression that, this, that, the, that any claim about implicit bias is well-established because, you know, the claims appear in the peer-reviewed literature, mm. even if they're unjustified, right? Mm. I mean, you know, like zero equal egalitarian, right? I mean, there's just this assumption. And, you know, right? and, right. and no, one said, no one said zero equal egalitarian. What they would do was they would just perform the IT. They would identify the number, the proportion of people in their sample above zero, and then they would say, that's how many people are, all right. But, but to get there requires the implicit assumption that zero equals unbiased, which was never tested. So, so right? And then, but right. now you have dozens or hundreds of articles showing that 80, 70, 80%, of, 90% of samples are, have implicit racism, and it's, 
it's all over the peer-reviewed literature. So it's sort of not even there. It's not completely unreasonable that some chemistry professor who is on the university DEI committee believes, you know, we need to do something about implicit bias. I mean, it's look at all these papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, and, you know, I, just to zoom out a little bit, I think implicit bias is not the only social psych finding of the 70s, 80s that that you know that, for, for which this phenomenon applies for which this description applies you know when you were talking about priming or stereotype threat can you talk a little bit about these other uh, i mean really really it seems like it seems like there was this whole movement to say more generally subtle psychological phenomena a matter a great deal for behavior and outcomes b it can be measured in fairly straightforward ways and now all of these same findings are running up against problems can you talk about that generally oh yeah yeah i i mean that is one you're absolutely right about that there was this infatuation with subtle measures starting in the 80s and into the 90s and well into the 2000s and and you're exactly right and yet you, you start had threat absolutely you have the priming especially stereotype priming could you quickly yeah. define those just so if, you, if people don't know them yeah well so stereotype threat is the idea that if something makes salient to you some like negative stereotype about your group, that that will somehow make you anxious. It'll get like kind of inside your head and make you and make it harder for you to do well in whatever you're trying to do. The classic study studies, the initial studies that demonstrated this were with black and white students. If you remind black students of, of of black racial stereotypes in any way whatsoever, simply by telling them that you're now taking an IQ test, you know, you're taking mm-hmm. an intelligence test. You know, the idea was that, well, people know about the stereotypes about racial stereotypes about intelligence and that, th- you know, this now gets inside their head. So when they're taking an actual cognitive ability test, like an SAT or a GRE mm-hmm. type test, they do worse on that test when, they, when they're subject to stereotype threat. There's a fear of confirming negative stereotypes about one's groups. So it goes well beyond that at this point, but that's the core idea of stereotype threat. And, and stereotype priming is kind of kindred to the IT, but it's not exactly the same thing. The sort of core idea there is something in the environment makes some sort of stereotype salient. It's people walk around, they're not thinking about stereotypes all the time. So you have to activate, the idea is you have to activate the stereotype in some way. And then, then if it's, even if they're not aware of how it's activated, it is, you know, again, this gets to this unconscious and automatic processes again. If it's activated in some way, it can influence their judgments and decisions and behavior. And the classic study there was and the researchers at Yale had college students do a word completion test. And, and, you know, they either had like, I'm, I'm inventing the words. I don't remember what the exact words were at this time. They either had neutral words like, you know, colors or animals, you know, caterpillars, and uh-huh. dogs and cats and yellow and blue. Or they had, they had to do word completion tasks for words that corresponded to being old. So retirement, social security, Florida, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, they're, 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 those were the kinds of words they would have to think. And so the idea was that these words that are associated with retirement would activate age stereotypes. Right. And what they published, I, you know, I, 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 I'll explain why I didn't I, you know, stop short of saying showed. What they published, and it's been cited thousands and thousands of times, was that when, when people had the, stere- the elderly stereotype primed that is activated by doing these, these, this word completion task involving you know, Florida and retirement and social security and all that sort of stuff, they walked more slowly. They actually measured how quickly mm-hmm. they, wa- they exited the lab, walked to a local <laughs> a nearby elevator, and they walked more slowly. Now, it turns out that that study was what, or a failure to replicate that study is one of the foundations of psychology's replication crisis. This, this all happened around 2011, 2012. It was kind of scandalous at the mm-hmm. time. And it, 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 was, it did inspire a lot of sort of soul-searching and some methodological improvement in the field. So, I, you know, I, I would say they did not show that priming elderly stereotypes causes people to walk more slowly. 
but that is what they published. Yeah, I mean, so 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 this this ties into sort of this, the the concept of the replication crisis more generally, which is there's lots of there's lots of pop social science findings based on observations of thirty college students in a course that if you do it with anybody else, no longer attains statistical significance in the same magnitude of effect size. Right. Um, yes. And that's like a huge problem. So it's what's huge. up with that? Yeah. Well, no one really knows. Like people say they, well, okay. Oh, so, we know. So, There's really bad science for several decades. Yes. That, well, yes, that's absolutely true. But they, so, so the, run, the running replication rate is somewhere around 50%. You know, about half of studies that have been tested for replication too. Now that is way above the level that would, be, would justify treating it all as complete nonsense. Right. I mean, because statistically, if the statistical assumptions are met and that's a whole big thing by itself. But if you accept the statistic, if you tentatively stipulate that the statistical assumptions are not too horribly violated, you would only expect about five percent of those studies to replicate. But it's 50 percent. So there's some, you know, so, so it's not total bullshit. But part of the problem is it is very people working on this also. It is. But it's very hard as an outside observer, without doing a deep dive into particular papers and studies to know which 50% is bullshit and which 50% is not. And I say bullshit. I mean, some of it is earnest. That They're not purposely... I mean, I think sometimes there is axe grinding and propaganda masquerading in social science. I think that is a problem. I, some of the stuff that doesn't replicate, I, I don't think people were malicious or evil or, you know, or any of those things. They just, you know... they. they that sort of it, it to some degree of failed replication comes with the territory of doing work with people. So you know, and, I, to and, some and, extent, calling it all bullshit is a little too pejorative. And, and when but, you say but from from a, from a consumer standpoint, it is not too pejorative because right. from a consumer standpoint, you want to well, what's true here? And you know, if it's bullshit, it's bullshit. It doesn't matter how it became bullshit; it's still something that doesn't deserve to be believed. So I don't want to, well, right. I'm not going to back off completely off. Of right. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, 50% chance of being true. It's like, it's a coin flip, right? You know, it's um, worthless. One quick thing is you said 50% of the studies they've tested, but are those studies necessarily a representative sample of all psych studies, right? No. Yeah. They, no, they're not. And, and in fact, I don't even know what, you know, maybe someday somebody will figure out how to do that, but you know, I suppose you could identify some population of studies. I don't know, identify five or 10 of the main social psychology mm -hmm. journals over a 10-year period and then randomly sample studies to replicate. I, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's not hypothetically impossible to do, but you would need a large enough studies, sample of studies that are replicated for that even, for even that to be meaningful. And it's hard. Replication is hard, you know. So right. So no. So we don't. The fifty percent is sort of the run rate of successful replication, but whether it what it represents is entirely no one knows. So the so the crisis could be either not quite as bad or significantly worse. Yes, we that is correct. We don't really know. Right. Yeah. Right. You should treat. So, so in in some sense, and that this is why I liked your both of your opening comments. You want one, not just you, anyone who hears this, really anyone, should treat almost anything that comes out of social science as having a huge swath of uncertainty around. So it's not like the researcher, I mean, the researchers may be evil, they may be, you know, grinding political axes, they may have an agenda, they may embed dogmatic assumptions in it. But even putting all that aside, there is just such uncertainty around any given claim that emerges from any given paper, even if the paper has multiple studies, that in my opinion, no one should ever treat anything. There might be some very rare exceptions, but in general, you will almost never go wrong if you treat anything emerging from social science as, well, maybe that's interesting, but there's no real need to believe it for, for 20 years. Because that is how I pull 20 years out of my year. I mean, maybe it could be done in eight years and maybe sometimes it might take 35 years, but it's going to take years and years to know whether those claims are true. Because the first step is you need researchers from independent labs to replicate. The thing you don't even, so there's, 
for any given paper, there's, is it replicable? Then there's also, are the conclusions valid, right? They could be replicable, right? The IIT is massively replicable, but most of its conclusions, the conclusions in the literature are, have, have mm -hmm. shown them to be dubious at best and invalid at worst. So it's not just a question of, replication is kind of the start, but it's not the end. And then even if it's replicable and even if the conclusions were valid for that study, mm -hmm. how, how, how generalizable are those findings? Like, is it, is it, is it replicable and correctly interpreted if one uses only the exact procedures of that experiment and then it has no relevance to anything in real life? Right. Or does it extend beyond that narrow and picayune and technical aspects of that experiment? There is no way to know that until that research is done, which is why it takes years and usually decades before anyone knows whether any of it should be taken seriously. But so I, I asserted earlier that, you know, most of the new translation, which is the, which, which is the self-important term for, I read other people's research and then I explain <laughs> policymakers can understand it. But lots of people who like me, which is to say, you know, policy analysts, journalists, whatever, go to the social site, take, take, take exactly the research that you're talking about and either don't know about or completely ignore the concerns that you're now raising. And so priming my 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 wife did did a course in which she was assigned a textbook talking about you know education and you know how how my wife is a teacher how different things can shape different students outcomes and it just reviewed all the primary literature completely uncritically it's like yeah this is a real thing i was like it's not <laughs> this just sticks around for a long time particularly because it tends to serve political agendas yeah. what's up with that like like well, ex you know, explain that phenomenon. Well, okay, so I don't really know, but what I suspect is in the mix is a confusion between natural science and social science. So with rare exceptions, and one, you know, might be some of the environmental stuff, which is very politicized, obviously. But, you know, if, if you're doing research on how to increase the tensile strength of a ceramic and you publish that, it, it, you know, I mean, it might not be replicable, but, you know, most likely other researchers are going to be able to replicate. I mean, you have this specific description on how to do it. And so the, the natural sciences may be becoming mm -hmm. more infected with political agendas, but not, I, I don't see it in, in, for the most part, in the, the, the uh, core components of, of work in the natural sciences. So if you're doing work on, you know, exoplanets, planets outside the solar system, mm -hmm. you know, the, the dynamic processes of black holes or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, engineering, how to engineer a better bridge. You know, that, those, that published literature, as far as I can tell, is mostly intact. The social sciences ad have adopted the veneer of the natural sciences. And veneer in cultural discourse, cultural, like, you know, like experience in society, veneer, and not just in science, like across lots of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's what people go with. They, you know, you, know, you look at the sort of superficial externals, right, and this is peer-reviewed. It's, you know, it's in an academic publication. Therefore, it must be true. Okay. And that is, in my opinion, vastly less true for the social sciences than it is for the natural. So it's this, this confusion. So, but, but you could say if you're an educator, mm -hmm. you know, you're a teacher, you're a principal in a school or a super, you know, superintendent, and you say, oh, look, there's all these psych studies showing X, X, Y, and Z. I guess it must be true. I mean, they have experiments and they have analysis of variance and regression. And these are, I remember learning about these things in grad school and they were very complicated and very, you know, very mathy. And so this must be true. How, how could it not be true? It's in a peer-reviewed journal. Right, right. One, one other driver I wonder about is the structure of scientific funding, because obviously there have been studies that then challenge the, the, the conventional narrative on implicit bias. But, you know, what the, one thing I hear from scientists a lot is that, A, it's more sexy to, you know, if, if you say, I'm going to find this cool new thing, right? That's, that's people want to fund that more than just, I'm going to try to replicate something someone already found. And then, of yeah. course, if you're going to challenge a kind of 
totemic progressive coded social science you just have file drawer effects too right like 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 you know it's there's a dynamic where you're not going to want to fund the study that challenges implicit bias because i mean we all know implicit bias is true and it's very important for us educated people to believe can you talk a little about how the 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 funding structure in the social sciences plays into all this well i mean academic institutions including funding at least funding at the federal level have been fully i mean i'm not sure yeah it sounds a little too conspiratorial conspiratorial i don't mean in the conspiratorial way but it's been effectively captured by the progressive left right so and and this is how this has worked it's not like there are a bunch of you know far lefty academics twirling their mustaches in basements figuring out how to take over institutions like that never happened right but but what you have instead is is literally especially in the social sciences you know which is what we're talking about now somewhere around 90 to 95% of the faculty are left of the american mainstream and of that 90 95% about half of them are really far left i mean my just about four months ago, one of my now former students completed his dissertation, which included surveying both faculty and graduate students across the disciplines, not just in social sciences. And but it had about two, almost 2,000 faculty and almost 2,000 graduate students, two different samples. And if you ask, he asked people to identify, uh, to, to describe their political identities. So this is their self-description. This is not us. This is not us saying, "Oh, well, they have pronouns on the bias, so they're radical." No, no, no. This is their self descriptions. Almost forty percent of these nearly two thousand faculty from across the disciplines self-identified as radicals, activists, Marxists, or socialists. Now, if you conduct there's lots of surveys on Americans' political affiliation, that figure is typically in single digits. It's 5%, 7%, 8%, kind of depends on the survey and how it's asked. So this is, and you some faculty proportion of the far, on the far, far left is approaching half. So it's not just that there's a lot, you know, people, a lot more people on the left than on the right, although that is true. You have a huge minority on the far from, and you have no counterbalance on the right. Because there are all, for all practical purposes in the social sciences, the conservatives are called. There's hardly any moderates at this point. There's some, it's not zero, but for all practical purposes, it's, it's probably effectively zero. Okay, so therefore, any social science institution, whether it's a journal or a funding, you know, to the extent that the academics are running mm-hmm. it, and that is how gr- your question was about grants, the way grants are, are allocated, I mean, formally, it's the decision of the program officer who's a political appointee. But the way, you know, there are political appointees, they convene grant panels of academics who then evaluate the proposals that are submitted for funding. Well, who are these academics? Well, they're academics who are highly successful in this system, completely dominated by people on the left and the far left. So how do you become, I mean, it's not completely impossible to succeed in academia unless you, you know, without being on the, on the left or the far left, but it is way easier to succeed in academia. And so these grand titles are filled with, you know, be, just even if they simply grew from academics representative of academia, they would be dominated by people on the far right. left. So that's, that's who's making decisions about what to fund. Right. In, including in the federal government, right? I mean, well, especially that's, in the federal yeah, government. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, private, private foundations are different, right? And you certainly right. have, you know, you have the Koch Foundation, which is sort of libertarian right, and they fund whatever the hell they mm-hmm. want, right? Well, I want, I want, to fund, want to fund. And then, you, you know, you have private foundations all over the political spectrum. But the federal, you know, the government, even when the government is run by Republicans. You know, you can have a Republican president, yeah. a Republican House and Republican Senate, but grant, even if they put in a Republican appointee to run, say, the National Science Foundation or the National Institutes of Health, if they, if they assign grants the way they always have, which is by convening panels of faculty to judge scientific quality, those panels of faculty are going to be overwhelmingly people on the left and far left. Given, so this is interesting because given that diagnosis, you know, recently there, there's been a lot of talk about these attempts in, say, Florida to stack university trustees, right, with, with 
more right-wing political people. And, and often that gets portrayed as a kind of departure from some imagined norm of academic neutrality. But it seems like from what you're saying, it, currently the entire academic apparatus, including the, the funding apparatus that, that intersects with the government, is just totally dominated by the left. So I'm curious, and I think we want to move to kind of solutions to all these problems in a, in a minute, but, but sort of as a bridge to that, what, what do you think the implications of this almost academic deep state are? Like, like how does that color your, 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 your assessment of attempts by, say, DeSantis to interject a little more right-wing political control into the process? Absolutely. So most of the academics who I respect, who have taken sometimes very courageous stands against the worst of the sort of illiberal left takeover of academia. Mm -hmm. People like Steven Pinker, people like Jonathan Haidt. You have Kathy Young, who's a journalist, not an academic, but does, you know, she's an essayist and her analysis almost always strives to be even-handed and fact-based as a, rather than mm -hmm. gender-driven. Really, all of them have come out against this takeover. That this is, you know, that, that an over, their, their view, summarizing, is that this overtly political attempt to take over a university is, is exactly the wrong direction. And, and their argument is that what you want to do is depoliticize universities rather than, and you can't do that by politicizing them. That, that kind of is their argument. I don't buy their argument. You know, I respect them. They're thoughtful people. I understand the argument. I, I don't know what depoliticizing university would even mean at this point. Uh, purging, and, and purging I, I think, is what it would mean. You, yeah, no right, one wants yeah. to say well, it, but like, but like, but like, yeah, you, right. can't, you can't, you can't depoliticize an institution that's 100% woke without well, getting rid of it. Least. Slowly. So, <laughs> yeah. so I'm not, I, you know, I, I am not a revolutionary, right? I don't, rev, you know, revolutions tend to be very, very bad. Yeah. You know, they, they, you know, they have this sort of, Utopian ideals that, and, and you know, in the name of the utopian ideals, the revolutionaries in, inflict all sorts of horrors, and that is true. On the, in my opinion, that's sure, true on sure. the left and the right. So I don't want I don't want a purge of lefty professors. But but no one it, it, the idea that bias is not cured by bias is manifestly wrong. And I'm going to give you a real world example. So in one of the things that has become common in academia or people are are their positionality statements. So this is sort of like a, a, a you know, it's a, a, a an, an, an innovation that's emerged from critical theory, postmodernism, that, mm -hmm. you know, people's biases are a function of their status and, a, and, and positionality and some status hierarchy in, in, in whatever society they are. So well, a positionality statement is, you know, you open up a research article or a talk with, as a white man, I am, da, 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 I recognize my position of privilege in the society. And therefore, you know, I am revealing this to you as if you couldn't see it for yourself, because, you know, to, 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 to just inform you on how this might bias my work. So that's okay. So I have a position, positionality statement on my Substack in which I say, and I point out both, both mockingly and in all seriousness that I identify as an amateur tennis player. And that becomes relevant here. One of the great things about tennis is it has an objective truth, right? When you hit the ball, it either lands in the court or it doesn't, right? And if, if your ball lands in the court and your opponent calls the ball out, your opponent is cheating. It's not a, an opinion. It doesn't matter what, you know, the race or ethnicity or demography of your opponent is, the ball's either in or out. So even though it is half mocking, it is also half serious. It is relevant here. That is an understanding how bias actually is a solution to bias. Metaphorically, when as a tennis player, sometimes you make a consistent error. So, you know, you're trying to hit the ball over the net into your opponent's court. Let's say instead of hitting it over the net, you keep hitting it in the net over and over. You keep hitting it in the net. You're trying to hit it in the court, but you hit it in the net. One way to overcome this relentless error is instead of trying to hit it in the court, by hitting it to your opponent's opposite fence. Hit it out their court. Hit it past their court. Because obviously you think you're hitting it right and you're hitting it too short into the net. So what you should do, or what you could do, is try to hit it too long. And either of two things are going to happen. You will mm -hmm. succeed at hitting it too long and you'll get a better feel for how to gauge your shots. 
or more likely, you're gonna, it's going to feel to you like you're hitting it too long and it's going to land in the damn court. Okay. So if the problem with universities is that they are, especially scholarship-wise, the, indo- you know, the indoctrinating students issue, that's more iffy. But with respect yeah. to scholarship, they are absolutely dominated by people on the left and far left who, you know, again, if you're dealing with something in chemistry and physics, that may not be all that important. But if you're dealing with political issues of, you know, with inequality or, or, or political partisanship or really any political issue, then the, if the scholarship is infused with bias, yet has the appearance of serious science because it's published in peer-reviewed journals, this is a serious problem for the society that needs academia to produce actual truth and actual knowledge rather than propaganda masquerading as truth and knowledge. This is a serious societal problem. If there were more people on, really on the set, at this point on the center or on the center right, who were thoughtful, were trained in the the, the most up-to-date modern methods in the field, right? you know, in my field, it would be experiments and surveys. Really, you're now getting a lot of sort of natural language processing and big social media type analysis, AI, right? If you're trained in those and you accept being bound by the norms of science, right? So this is not, you know, we're not talking about inviting Nazis in. We're talking about inviting people who are trained in methods of science and the logic of scientific inference that are, the premier methods in the field at the time, you bring those people in, they are likely to be more motivated and more skeptical of things that I would describe as, 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 as left-wing propaganda masquerading as science. If you, had more, if you had more people in the field providing that kind of skeptical check, which is actually kind of a normal function of, of science, then it would probably be more difficult for propaganda masquerading as science to escape from academia. So the, to, to install a slew of conservative trustees in an institution in an attempt to walk the institution back from far-left activism and back towards aspirational, nobody's perfectly neutral or objective, nobody's claiming that, but to, to, to aspire to neutrality and objective objectivity rather than abandoning it completely for a political project. They, they may do a terrible job. And at the end, I might say, oh my God, this is conservative axe grinding at the worst. And they've just run this university into the ground. I reserve the right to have that opinion after the fact, but I think they should be given a chance. Yeah. The only thing I would just quickly add here before I turn it over to Charles is the, the point you make that in fact, bias can totally correct bias, right? <laughs> That's the founding of the United States, right? This is Madison, you know, factions need to be checked by other factions. You can't get rid of bias. So you just allow, you create a fragmented system in which the biases are allowed to check each other. In a sense, the the, the imagined neutral academic ideal that says, no, no, you know, we can't allow any political appointees at Florida universities, God forbid. I mean, the, the logic undergirding that is totally antithetical to the logic at the heart of the liberal constitutional republic that is the United States. So that's something that I think those people in the, in the kind of Jonathan hate camp who, I, look, I like him too, but like th- that is something that they should, I think, address, that their, their arguments seem to presuppose negation of yeah. the American liberal project, which is maybe not something they actually want to do. <laughs> anyway, Charles? No comment. Okay. Yeah, Charles uh, is like I don't. I don't like America or liberalism. I don't like Screw America. <laughs> America's great, greatest yeah. country in history of the world. No, so I, we do want to. We do want to wrap up a minute. I want to. I want to ask. We sort of talked about political solutions. I want to ask about personal solutions. Uh, listeners to our podcast, hopefully, you know, skeptical. What can they do to recognize bullshit in the wild? A, a lay person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, probably. So, paper just came out showing that the more likely that some piece of social science gets play in the mainstream media, the less likely it is to be true or reputable. So, so you, you really, the, the, you know, if you're talking about a layperson, what, that they're much more likely to see something in the mainstream media than they are to, you know, read the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology or Trends in Cognitive Science. These are academic peer-reviewed journals. Uh, they should, they should, and I, I'm ditzer. This is not just me making it like snarky, snarky comment. They should, 
they shouldn't dismiss it out of hand, but they should treat it with deep, deep skepticism and put belief aside for a long, long time. It's just because it appears in some main outlet, it, it is unlikely to actually be true. And it, it, and it is a, a major red flag is if it feels compellingly true to you. What that, all that is saying is that it's playing to your own biases. That, you know, it says something that you want to believe is true. And that's a terrible reason for believing something. That, that would be the one, so, you know, if you see it in the mainstream media, just, just, just don't disbelieve it. Don't, when I say disbelieve, you can't say, well, I know that's not true, but you should just put it aside in a separate bin and like, yeah, well, let's come back to this in 20 years, but there's no reason for me to believe it. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that as an opportunity to sort of jump into closing comments and I'll, <laughs> which is, so, you know, look, and I, I, I try to do this with, I try to do this with findings that I think are plausible too, or, you know, fi fi excuse me, fi findings that, findings that confirm my biases or fi findings that confirm my assumptions. So just for example, there's a Pew poll out last month in, in January found basically it's a, a poll of parents much more concerned that their children have a successful career, have a have a job that fights them, then they be financially independent, they want their kids to get married or have children. And I wanted to believe, you know, th th this confirms every horrible thing I suspect in our society. And so I spent like 15 minutes trying to poke methodological holes in it. Because I was like, nope, no, that, that, that confirms my prior is too much. I don't trust it. Sounds like nonsense. Can't be right. It's got to be more ambiguous than that. Which I think is a good is 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 a good attitude, right? And and this goes in the opposite. You know, somebody who's talking about how to how to reduce policing bias, which plays into my day job. Somebody said, "Oh, here's a study. Put a checkbox on police stop forms. Was this was this stop really necessary? It reduces stops of black by forty percent. I went, sounds sounds nice if it works. Wait for the replication because I've I've read that it's that's. That's like if you sign at the top versus signing at the bottom, which is a, a study that not only did not replicate, but was fake. <laughs> I'm not accusing the author of that study of faking their data. I don't think they did. I'm just saying weird stuff. Right. Hey, look, this is a common theme on the science episode of this podcast. Like we're kind of just guessing here and recognize that and then sort of understand like like what's 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 going on with that. Like, you know, the, the ways in which people routinely fail. Aaron, what's what's your takeaway from the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I started by asking the questions or how much can we really trust this? And I think the my takeaway has been, look, it's better than just randomly guessing. And that's about all we can really say. I mean, I mean, I don't I, I guess I guess I guess look, like like if you follow the debate about a particular topic and you do enough of your own reading, it seems like you probably could come to a more settled view about, you know. Like, like my understanding is that even though it's, it, it, it gets controversial, you know, in, in psychometrics, right? Like the IQ and IQ being a predictor of lots of things actually is pretty well established, but, you know, beyond that and beyond some other very basic things, it, it just seems like we're, it's more, it's more like, you know, flipping a coin and, and hoping. Um, so, <laughs> well, there are, you know, the, the other, the other body of research that is really well, there's probably more than just the, these, take a hold of podcast. You know, the, the, I would say two things. You have motivated reasoning, and I think mm -hmm. that's really, really well established. You have the Kahneman Tversky biases, like this would be a whole thing, that people's right. decision-making short circuits perfect rationality by using these sort of simple, right. sort of simple but imperfect rules. That's really highly replicable. Lots of people find that and I don't know, I had, there's at least one other thing in there. That's yeah. That, so, well, that's, you know, that's oh, actually bias. People tend to, bias. I mean, it's not, right. yeah, in-group bias. Right. The, the other thing I guess I would say is, is just all those examples you gave are, are things that I think, now maybe because we live in a world in which those are already social science findings, I'm just projecting, but, but those are very, like, say there wasn't a term for motivated reasoning, but I, but I think everyone has the experience of believing something and kind of trying to come up with arguments for it and wanting to believe, like, like it's a very intuitive human thing. A, a lot of, yeah. it seems like the most robust findings in psychology or IQ are things that almost are almost just a priori truths 
like or, or truths that are derivative from just basic human experience, right? Like if someone told you, oh, there's a study that finds that, you know, people tend to like others like them. It's like, whoa, I mean, I had no idea. You know, you know, when I looked at like the history of Europe in the 20th century, I would have thought that everyone just you know, loved everyone equally, but it turns out it's like, no, I mean, I mean, this is like for nope. that to not be true. Right. Would, would, would require such a convoluted, crazy explanation of like all of reality. It's just like, no, of course that's true. And so that's my other thing is like, if the finding is something that comports very well with just basic common sense mm. of lived experience, I'm inclined to both give it more credence but also to think was this really necessary to do a study was on it necessary? right yeah right. and the more and the more it, and the more it doesn't the more it's like oh actually you're racist because you like you know click. it took you three milliseconds longer to click on the right side of the screen than the left side that's where i'm like oh give me a break like come on. <laughs> yeah. well, so so what I, it, it's a really good point so we don't i don't think we really know whether so what, what would you want to you could imagine a sample of a thousand social scientists and a thousand lay people making predictions about the future or about some human situation. Who would do better? I don't know what the answer to that one is. I, I mean, there is not a compelling reason to think that social scientists know anything more about human psychology outside their very narrow expertise. So if they've run 10 experiments on some such thing and you ask them what's going to happen in the 11th experiment, they'll do better with that than lay people. I'm confident they would do better than that with lay people. But as soon as they step outside that narrow expertise, it is unclear to me that they would do any better, which means it is not clear that, it's exactly as you're saying, Aaron, that, that there's been any, there's been much in the way of enduring wisdom, insight, or understanding that has been gleaned from social science that a reasonably intelligent, thoughtful person wouldn't have gotten anyway. I completely agree with that, with one exception, and that is the Kahneman and diversity stuff. You know, they have a, this availability heuristic, a representative heuristic. Sure. You know, the, that, the, that, none of that was intuitive, that sure. people were doing sure. any of those things. Sure, so. sure, sure. sure. I want to do some recommendations. Aaron, do you recommendation for our listeners? Yeah, it's not directly related to this conversation, but it's sort of tangentially related. This great essay that the New Atlantis editor-in-chief Ari Shulman wrote in 2020 called The Right Scientific Counter-Revolution. And a lot of good observations in it, but it was basically about how a lot of the right-wing skepticism of the conventional wisdom on COVID kind of appealed not just to political arguments about the destructive costs of lockdowns or or to just sort of criticizing scientists or public health experts what it what it what a lot of it did was appeal to this kind of counter class of experts on the right you know the the authors of the great barrington declaration and other credentialed scientists who did studies purporting to show oh the fatality rate's actually a lot lower than you think it's more like the flu blah 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 and and the point in the essay is that we live in this scientistic culture where even if you want to dissent from science, what ends up happening, or if you want to dissent from institutional science, it's, you still feel the need to appeal to not just science, but almost to an entire class of like counter scientific experts, which I thought was a, it was a very astute essay. And I think you could probably apply a lot of its analysis and findings beyond COVID and probably probably apply them to social psychology and the sorts of debates we canvassed on this podcast. Charles? Uh, yeah, I'm going to plug an old piece by a friend in 2016. Is that when he wrote it? Yeah, 2016, a friend of mine named Will Wilson wrote, a, wrote an article in First Things called Scientific Regress, May of 2016. You can find it online about the replication crisis writ large and the crisis of meta-science. He talks about Classic John Ioannidis paper. What's the name of the paper, John Ioannidis? Why? Why most pu published findings are false. Yeah. Right, right. Why most published findings are false. The empirical problems in contemporary social science. It's still a useful explainer. Those are topics that we didn't that we didn't touch on today. I recommend it. Lee, what's your do you recommendation for our listeners from your own work from others? You know, if uh, if they're really interested in academic dysfunction they should subscribe for free to my Substack, right? Unsafe Science, which it's just, you know, 
every once in a while, I'll tout something that is interesting and worthwhile. But, but I, I mean, I really think academia on, on, especially on these political type issues, is train wreck. And so most of what in there, what's in there is exposing the train wreck. I mean, you can think of it as a sort of exposés from, from, by an insider of academic dysfunction. So unfit, you know, substack, unsafesciencesubstackcom Okay. Well, thank you, Lee, for joining us on Institutionalized. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, paper rejections you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Siberium. I think that's about all the time that we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Siberium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon. Bye.